This is a Rooster Teeth production. Imagine walking through a cemetery in the middle of the night and finding a freshly unearthed grave, the coffin swung open, and nothing inside. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we take a deep dive into topics, people, places, and things of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. And somehow we find a way to have some fun (laughs) doing it. I'm Elise Willems. I am Jessica Vasami. Hey, Jess. Hi, Elise. How are you? I'm good. Uh, This is a fun episode before us because today we are talking about crime, which I guess technically we're... True crime podcast. Yeah, I of. guess. Like weird true crime, unexplained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The unexplained, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and this is some particularly morbid crime that we're getting into today. And we're kicking it off with some stories about obituary bandits. I'm excited for this, merely because mm-hmm. I I am in complete shock and awe that this is something that happens. <laughs> I knew of it on a very surface level, but then getting into this, I'm just like, what the? Yeah. And modern obituary bandits, this is a thing that I knew nothing about. But let me set the stage here. In 2008, a Missouri man named Dane Johnson was arrested for burglarizing 30 homes in the Kansas City area. What made this case so unique, though, was that it wasn't just any breaking and entering. Johnson had strategically planned his robberies by targeting grieving families while they were attending the funeral services of their deceased loved ones. But he isn't the only person who has done a crime like this. No, 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 no. In 2007 in Reno, Nevada, a man named Richard Charles Hari was arrested for the same thing. In Hari's case, he'd use obituaries to learn what he could about the deceased to try and guess what they would have in their homes. There were another notable string of robberies that happened in New York and Connecticut in 2018. The perpetrator was Latonia Stewart, who actually, she got caught doing the same sort of robbery, robbing people who were at funerals or the homes of the deceased. When the police set up a surveillance on the home of a retired police detective who had recently passed away. Oh, geez. Uh, so they they got her from the inside, kind of. Hey, she she deserved it. <laughs> she did. You know, all of these obituary bandits, they share the common distinction of targeting people when they are at their lowest grieving point. And they're also just taking like, they're stealing priceless family heirlooms and trinkets and memories. Like it's, it's really messed up. It is. I mean, do these people have any morals? I guess they are just desperate for money. Yeah. And it's like, like the moral question, they're already robbing people, which is pretty immoral because, you know, you're, you're taking from someone else and they're doing it to people who are already at their lowest, like it's kicking someone while they're down. Absolutely. And I had never heard of such a thing as an obituary bandit. I mean, I I have to say it is kind of clever. It is. Like, if you think about it. I know. And I I actually had that thought earlier and then I felt really guilty for thinking it. Mm -hmm. Um, Same. And I, and, but I had no problem saying it out loud, I guess. What does that say about me? (laughs) A lot. It says a lot about you, but also (laughs) why are we doing this podcast in the first place? Because we're twisted and weird individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And this is kind of like an interesting entry point for our topic today, right? Yeah, it grave robbing. Um, 
obituary bandits are kind of like modern inverse grave robbers. Uh, but unlike yeah. <laughs> but unlike traditional grave robbers, um, obituary bandits steal from the deceased without actually pillaging their graves, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because like if, in the traditional sense of grave robbing, like you're opening up someone's grave and mm-hmm. you are taking from it. And coming into this podcast, I had a lot of preconceptions about what grave robbing is and You know, you might think of grave robbing as an archaic thing that doesn't really happen anymore, but it does. It (laughs) happens a lot, apparently, and we will get into all of that. Um, But when you think of grave robbing, you probably think of it in the more historical and classical sense, which aligns with the very definition of the practice. And by definition, a grave robber is a person who steals valuables from graves and tombs and or a person who steals corpses after burial. It's very illegal, and it might also be referred to as body snatching. And um, we learned a lot today. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so much to cover here, but one of the, or the approach that we took today was to break everything down by, by mens rea, <laughs> by what the motivations are that drive thieves to rob graves. Because I, I learned that there are many different reasons why someone might rob a grave. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Some that I thought I didn't think of or maybe that I tried not to think of. <laughs> no, my only one I thought of was, okay, money, you need to sell the items. But then again, I thought it was just stealing items from the tomb or the uh, grave itself. I actually did, didn't think that they were also stealing bodies and then come to find out, well, they're stealing bodies and oh, well, here we are Jessica, now. <laughs> you sweet summer child. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I think what you need to really uh, open your mind to is what they are doing with the bodies. Yep. But uh, we'll, we will get to that. Um, so the, the the first motivation that we'll, we'll start with is medical cadavers. This is obtaining corpses and cadavers, stealing them for medical use. And it's time to throw it back to one of my favorite eras in history, the Victorian era. If you listen to our death and superstition episode, we talked about this big innovation explosion in modern medicine and how there were all these advancements and new understandings being made. And so a ton of aspiring doctors were joining this field. There was also a ton of disease and, you know, our understanding of microbiology and, and the getting to to disease on a, like a molecular level was changing and, and our knowledge was growing. Um, And this all ties into how in North America and the UK grave robbing became this robust industry in the 18th and 19th centuries. And especially in England, because there was a huge demand for medical cadavers and the ways in which they would use these cadavers and and why they needed them. If you were a medical student at this time and wanted to obtain a medical license, you had to dissect two complete bodies. And Jess, can I just add in here that two complete bodies didn't mean always the same full body. Sometimes it was like you might get pieces from one body, pieces from another body, but as long as they all eventually totaled two complete bodies, that's what counted. <laughs> Jeez. Um, Sorry. Good to, no, good to know. Good, good to know. Um, Sorry, go on. No, I love this. Love it. Learning new things. 
So yes, dissecting two complete bodies. But prior to 1832, the only body that you could legally obtain for dissection was that of an executed criminal. And there weren't enough of these cadavers to go around. So a bunch of sordid individuals, criminals really, started digging up bodies and selling them to schools for dissection. These thieves came to be known as the Resurrection Men because they dig up the graves, loot the contents, and then sell them on the black market. Ugh, Resurrection Men is far too cool a moniker for what these scumbags were doing. Agreed. I was like, that's no, not the right term. <laughs> and kind of like the obituary bandits of modern day, these Resurrection Men, they would they would case out the situation. So they would like stake and case out funerals and graveyards or try to blend in with mourners. And they would also target burial sites near hospitals, which I guess was a big thing because, you know, you, it, the idea that if somebody was buried in a hospital burial ground, they probably didn't have much family. Mm -hmm. And one of the most common methods of stealing a corpse for medical use, and this is wild, and I had never heard about this, Jess, was you uncover only the head of the grave. So you only dig up the head and then you pull the body out with a pulley system head first. That way that you don't have to dig up the whole thing and then you only fill in one small part of the grave, not the entire thing. So these resurrection men are just out there in this field of uh, the cemetery next to the hospital bringing out a pulley system. Did no one see them do this? <laughs> yes. Like, when are they... <laughs> You know, like, that's my first thought is like, when did you yeah. guys do this? Me too. I guess if they could like quickly maneuver the pulley system and then if the if you think about it, if the digging takes the most time, but the pulley system is just involved, but doesn't take a lot of time. I don't know. Yeah. I need to look up and see if I can find diagrams of this system or Absolutely. whatever. I'm also curious how many people at a time it would take to do this in such a fast manner. Well, it seems like some of them worked in pairs, right? Like the pair you're about to tell us about. Yes, there is a famous case, a legal case that happened in 1828 in Scotland, where two men, Edward Burke and William Hare, were found guilty of murdering 16 people and selling their corpses for dissection. So this was one of the catalysts that prompted a change in the law and the signing of the um, Anonymy Act of 1832, which allowed anatomists to take unclaimed bodies of people who died in workhouses and in hospitals. Yeah. So this legislation existed that if you were not claimed, you could be taken. That's so morbid. <laughs> yeah. Now people can just like donate their body to medical science. Yeah. But I feel like that comes with its... Did you see that story in the news about this man who he thought that his mother had donated his, her body to medical science, but then it turned out she was actually be, being used for a bunch of weird tests and stuff? No, I didn't hear about that. Oh, Jess, I'm so sorry about this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I'm very curious. Are, are you an organ donor? Oh, I should be. I should be, right? It's the right thing to do. I should be. Well, Are you? I am. But like, I, I don't know what, you know, I, I don't know what is, I don't want my body to just like rot in the earth. I mean, it's science if I can help. You know what I think it is? I think sometimes I feel like if I check that organ donor card, they're going to be so hasty to get their hands on these 
quality organs that they're not going to do whatever it takes to save me. Elise, you have extreme <laughs> IBS. <laughs> no, they're going to want these quality organs. Okay. Trust me. Trust me. I know they're going to take one look and they're going to they're going to look past the IBS <laughs> and they're going to they're going to want these goods. Anyway, back to more serious, depressing things. On the other side of the pond in the U.S., grave robbing was also a problem, and it was tied to some pretty horrific and systemic racism. Prior to the 19th century, authorities and people turned a blind eye to grave robbing uh, because it mostly happened in poor areas, as well as predominantly African-American areas, to people who were both free and enslaved. And slave owners sometimes sold and donated bodies of their slaves to medical schools, Black cemeteries were segregated and graves were sometimes even just left unmarked. Ugh. The living were often powerless to stop the anatomist from pillaging. It went beyond the law and it was a very clear act of racism and exploitation. Even as legislation came into being, grave robbing still happened against the unprotected and the marginalized. And it wasn't until someone affluent or white was affected that the general public finally started taking a stand in what were known as anatomy riots. Mm -hmm. These kind of riots, they happened across the U.S. at different times in different places. One notable one, the New York Doctors' Riot, it happened in 1788 when a white woman's body was stolen from a churchyard and a group of men stormed the hospital's anatomy room and this violent altercation ensued until eventually the state intervened. And like I said, similar riots happened in other states, including Baltimore, Cleveland, Philadelphia, and these were sometimes instigators that resulted in states making grave robbing a criminal offense on a state by state basis. I'm really glad I wasn't alive during this time because it, it seems like things like this just needed to happen in order to put like certain legislation in place. And then we just move on from that, as in like grave robbing and all of this, even though it still happens. It's like, OK, hey, guys, this is illegal. Let's not do this anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and I think, though, with things like grave robbing, it's a little bit shocking how long it took for some states yeah. to put it into place. And also, I'm pretty sure that there are certain states, we'll, we'll get to it later, but where things like necrophilia and that were not outlawed as early as you think they should have been. Please. God. But again, that's just a little preview. <laughs> so on what's to come. But yeah, so the U.S. was kind of getting its shit together, sort of, right, Jess? Kind of. Baltimore was a big hub for resurrections because there were so many medical schools in the immediate and near areas. Plus, Maryland had a winter temperate zone where the ground wouldn't freeze over, so grave robbers could capitalize on this and service New England and the Midwest. The story goes that if the corpses had to be shipped, they were crammed into barrels filled with whiskey because this masked the odor. Oh my God. This is allegedly where the term rot gut whiskey comes from because they would still sell the whiskey after the bodies were in there. Ugh, I I hope that this is just like an urban legend, old wives tale that they would sell the whiskey after because that I I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't either. But I also I I think this I wouldn't put it past them. This absolutely. But you know, Jess, <laughs> I bet it has a pretty full bodied flavor. Oh, my God. <laughs> 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 uh, that was have, good Elise thank you we have fun here <laughs> um, so moving on so yeah so cadavers um, that that was big business turn of the century big business 
And I don't think that's as common nowadays. Um, I think we've moved past that generally. But one thing we have not moved past is uh, looting tombs, mausoleums, crypts, and graves for valuables and treasure. This type of looting Mm. is both an ancient and a modern problem. As thieves still break into graves looking for expensive possessions or trinkets um, that may have been buried with the deceased, maybe some like family heirlooms or treasures in a more historical sense, you know, we're looking at like ancient Egypt a lot mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I think this is where your mind might go is robbers plundering the tombs of pharaohs. And in these situations, mummies would even be slashed open by thieves to see if there were treasures inside, which there were sometimes. See, yeah, I didn't know that. I knew that their tombs would be raided. I did not know that they would actually cut open the mummies to see if there were treasures inside. Mm-hmm. And hey, some sometimes they were right. But yeah, no, in ancient Egypt, grave robbing was the worst offense a person could commit, the punishment being death. Pyramids and burial chambers were specifically constructed to deter and prevent thieves and were sometimes even booby-trapped or had curses written on the doors and walls. You know, given how much important the Egyptians put into the afterlife, like defiling someone's tomb or damaging the body was seen as damaging their place and status in the afterlife. Yeah. And I think that's like such a big part because what we know about mummification, the process of doing that where the organs are removed and they're put in canopic jars that are kept Mm -hmm. around the tomb too. And like, there's just a lot of stake that the Egyptians put into. We do all of this because it means that this person will have a good afterlife like what we're putting in this tomb is going to go with them it's it's the opposite of the adage you can't take it with you the egyptians were like you will take all of this with you yeah you know and so the idea that somebody would come in and destroy or take any of that was like egregious absolutely but even also more of kind of like a target as well. Yeah, exactly. Like they were building these giant monuments to wealth. Mm -hmm. And then when they got robbed, we're like, oh my gosh, (laughs) we can't believe somebody is robbing our tombs, which is part of the reason why the Valley of Kings was constructed as a burial place for pharaohs. And if you don't know too much about the Valley of Kings, it was this valley and there was a Valley of, of Queens too. And it was constructed to hide tombs. So it was supposed to be like a deterrent to grave robbers. It would provide extra protection. And it didn't advertise like a lot of pyramids and tombs did. It, it hid all the tombs underground with these hidden entrances. Um, it ultimately didn't prevent tombs from later being looted, but it did help at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was one story I came across, Jess, about this one pharaoh, Amenemhat, Uh, who was in life just like so consumed by the idea of his tomb being raided that um, when he started construction of his burial site, he had this plan of like all these tunnels inside and and hidden rooms and mazes. um, And he had the men who built this enter each day in a blindfold so that only he knew the exact layout. Hey, that's smart. Hey, it is smart. (laughs) Um, his tomb was robbed anyway. Well, um, okay. (laughs) Yeah. So it ultimately didn't, didn't work. And the robbers, I guess, were like, to add insult to injury, they saw all that he put into creating these deterrents and they, and they still bested it. So they like burned his mummy as an insult. My gosh. Come on guys. Like that's damn. Yeah. That's hard. 
That's harsh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous tombs discovered in this valley is, of course, Tutankhamun, a.k.a. King Tut, which was appraised at around three quarters of a billion dollars. His golden coffin alone was appraised at 13 million. The most expensive thing I have like that is the crown in my mouth, which I went for the (laughs) I went for the porcelain veneer. Over Did the, you? Yeah, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna treat myself like a pharaoh uh, of your. Absolutely. And that's what they'll take from my mouth when I'm gone. I, I think like when we talk about ancient Egypt, we kind of have to think about what the difference actually is between grave robbing and archaeology. Yeah. There's a line there when pretty big one. We have to figure out, <laughs> yeah, where that line is drawn. The general rule that I came across is that if an item is between 75 to 100 years old, it's an antique. Mm -hmm. Uh, but United States law puts it at a hundred years. And when you're getting into archeology span though, age alone isn't, it's not like a free pass where you're like, this thing is a hundred old years old. I can take it and put it in a museum. Totally. There are still independent state governing bodies that outline guidelines for legal excavations and you definitely need a permit. And also intent plays a major role too. So like if you're finding these items to piece them together and learn and teach about history and prehistory that is is what you need to establish to to do archaeology. You can't just like hair, you know, Indiana Jones be like this belongs in a museum <laughs> and like take yeah. it that doesn't work. I also feel like if I were to just find a dinosaur bone or something from ancient Egypt, you can't just like keep that to yourself. <laughs> I feel like you yeah. need to you know. Absolutely. And people have private collections. Well, modern grave robbing still happens, though. Not something that I actually thought still happened. But hey, there's I'm naive in a lot of ways I've come to realize. And sometimes it doesn't even require opening a tomb. Thieves steal statues, columns, benches and fountains, which they then resell to antique stores and flea markets. So, you know, like when you go to a cemetery and there are some of those like maybe it's a statue of an angel or something over somebody's grave people are stealing those and then oh selling God. them at antique stores and flea markets some people have no boundaries no i know <laughs> and there's a story about um this is true johnny cattle of swainsborne georgia has spent the past two years searching antique malls for the statue taken from her brother's grave. It was a three-foot-tall boy angel made of Italian marble, was the centerpiece of a large monument erected in a small rural cemetery about 80 years ago. A replacement angel could cost at least $4,000, Cattle said, and no new statue could ever replace, in her terms, little Bubba. Which is really sad. Mm-hmm. And also what Jessica calls me sometimes. <laughs> little Bubba Elise. I think you said those exact words too. Nothing could ever replace little Bubba. Oh and then I, I pop my head up and I say, did you call me? <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, this is like wild. And, and if you did track down this statue, what do you do? You, you stole my statue from the cemetery? Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't know. Because it's also such a weird thing. To steal, but I guess it makes them money. Ugh. And, and grave robbing is still a big problem in China. And thieves target ancient temples and shrines, especially like in the countryside where there's not, you know, there's no law enforcement. And in 2020, the government tracked down 2,400 thieves and retrieved over 31,000 lost or stolen items. And but this is a problem that like kind of 
arose in the 1970s because there was more organized crime and trafficking happening. Uh, in 1982, there was this law that went into place, the protection of cultural relics, and it was supposed to crack down on this behavior. But instead, it pushed all the thieves to the fringes of the black market. And even though it's taboo in China to rob graves, there have been these series of novels and movies that have come out that have kind of glamorized this practice. One of them Mm -hmm. is this novel called Ghost Blows Out the Light. And so it's actually like spurred on teenagers and stuff. They think it's like romantic to Mm -hmm. do this. Yeah. And also something that I really didn't think about, Jess, but like modern technology makes it easier for grave robbers to like Ocean Eleven this and communicate with each other and like easily find and buy equipment and pull off these kind of grave heists. Hi, can I book uh, the police system for March 16th? Uh, yeah. I need to go <laughs> rent, rob a grave. Yeah, rent it, like production equipment. Yeah. Another motivation that I didn't think about, ransoms. Uh, there have been a few cases of body snatchers demanding ransoms from the still living relatives of the deceased. So basically grave robbers, they they plunder a grave and they take the body that's inside and then they hold it hostage until the individual's family can compensate them financially. And there are actually like a few notable and famous incidents of this happening. Yeah. My first thought was like famous people for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, yeah, being Charlie Chaplin, died December 1977. In March 1978, his grave was found unearthed. The entire coffin was missing, not just his body. And uh, it had to be taken by truck. It was recovered two months later. But here's what happened. A duo of Bulgarian and Polish body snatchers took Chaplin, then demanded over $300,000 British pounds, so around $2.5 million today, from his family. Chaplin's widow refused to pay the ransom. Yeah. Uh, what the hell? Uh, but deceived and led on the body snatcher so police could track and catch them. He was recovered and is now buried in the same spot, but now with concrete encasing. I would be cheering if I was watching and observing this all go down and her trick them. I would be pumping my fists in the air so hard. Oh, 100 <laughs> percent. Yes. That these these people thought they could take advantage of someone like this. And yeah, got got the got the script flipped on them. Absolutely, got but the, yeah, I can't even say that. Got the script flipped on them. I yeah <laughs> yeah, but no, that was my first thought of just like having this happen to um yeah famous people, people of power and influence, uh, knowing that there's money behind it. Yeah, like I bet you know when I when I go, it's gonna happen to me. They're gonna try to ransom me. They're gonna say Jessica, pay us. Yeah, you can think that. I'll let you die thinking that. Oh. Okay. That's not the case, but we'll never tell her. (laughs) Uh, There's another pretty bizarre story about uh, Tassos Papadopoulos, the former president of the Republic of Cyprus, who died of lung cancer in 2008. Uh, His body was interred at a village cemetery until the day before the first anniversary of his death, when his former bodyguards found an empty hole in the ground where his tomb had been. And what makes this story weirder than your average body snatching is the motive. So there was this murderer serving a life sentence in prison, and he asked his brother to dig up the former president's body so that he could negotiate his release from prison using the body as collateral. Oh, my gosh. And I don't know how you think that's going to pan out for you. I don't. Yeah, exactly my thoughts. Did it pan out? It did not. (laughs) 
Good. Hey, Jess? Yeah. Cannibalism. I knew we'd come to this. Cannibalism. Believe it or not, graves are also plundered for purposes of cannibalism. That's, I just... That's eating, I eating knew, the corpses. Yep. I, yep. I know what cannibalism is. Thank you, Elise. Um, I figured that something worse than grave robbing, if you would think that there would be something worse, would come into play. And here we are. Yeah. And a lot of this, let's call it necro-cannibalism, because I believe that is the technical term for it throughout history can be tied to a lot of outdated medical beliefs. So like in ancient Rome, when spectators would drink the blood of fallen gladiators to, you know, cure any ailments they had, that was a thing. I I didn't know that before researching this episode. I did not know that either. That's, ah, that's bizarre. I also learned recently that, uh, Gladiators would do like product placements in advertisements Wait. before a um, match. Wait, explain this. So like with with what? Like their swords or something? Like, ah, go to my friend down here. He'll... What? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently in, in the movie Gladiator, this got cut from the script, but like they had a thing where the gladiators would, I don't know, maybe advertise, yeah, maybe advertise like, uh, you know, buy from this merchant Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's it sounds funny because it sounds like the an ancient version of podcast ads. <laughs> also, like King Charles, too, was a big believer in eating people, essentially. And he would make these tinctures from human skulls called the King's Drops that he also thought could cure various ailments, including headaches and in the 16th and 17th century, European high society developed a fascination with mummies and the rich would purchase mummies and do these big unveiling parties where they would buy them for their curiosity cabinets. But it also became practice to eat mummies or more specifically grind up mummies into a powder and mix that powder with different tinctures to cure various ailments. So, for example, a skull was thought to cure a head ailment. It's interesting to me because isn't it known that when you eat a human body as a human and drink blood, whatever they're doing here, that it's not good for your body and your stomach doesn't process it correctly? Like, are these, was this actually working for them to where they continue to do this? No, it probably made them sicker. And I mean, they didn't know that kind of germ theory then. So they just kind of thought, oh, if you have a problem with your leg, eat or like consume something that came from someone with a strong leg. A lot of this was coming from doctors who would be digging up these corpses and making these concoctions and stuff. No, it absolutely makes sense. I I understand their thinking, but I I guess it's just confusing to me that they kept doing it, even though it it, it would make them sick. Just uh, they're like, oh, I still don't feel good, but I'm going to keep doing it. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if they were already sick. They didn't realize. Probably. Like a new a new sickness. Yeah. Yeah. And now the grave robbing motive that I know we've all been waiting for, yourself included, Jess, necrophilia. And here we are again. Uh, It's gotten Mm -hmm. worse. By definition, committing sexual acts with a corpse. And yes, you would think that this doesn't happen or if it did happen, it doesn't happen anymore. But sadly, again, it does. We won't draw this part out too long, but in 2006, three Wisconsin men, all 20 years old, were charged with digging up a grave at St. Charles Catholic Cemetery in Cassville with the intent to have sex with the body of a recently deceased woman. The men were formally charged with attempted theft and attempted third-degree sexual assault. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, being, you know, charged with sexual assault even when the person has 
died, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's disgusting. I, it's all messed up. It is. Like, there's nothing else to say about it, I think. I, there really like, is nothing else to say. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, there are other reasons why grave robbing might happen. Like, you know, witchcraft rituals and, and mm-hmm. things like that, I think. Um, you know, we, we won't probably get into everything today. So we, we've mentioned a few of the ways that people have tried to deter grave robbing. We talked about, you know, in the ancient Egypt section, we mentioned that quite a bit. But yeah. there are also some other notable and interesting ways that the deceased and, and their descendants attempt to prevent this from happening. Yeah. My first thought is, you know, geography, burying mm-hmm. the deceased in a very hard to reach a traverse place. Yeah. I feel like there are some places in the world where like in a cliffside or the, you know, the Valley of the Pharaohs was kind of a place where it's like, we'll put them underground. Yeah. Like in, in tombs, we, we, they're hidden mort safes, which were iron coffins or frameworks that like protect a grave. So the body can't be like dug up or taken away. You can't, you know, cut through the iron. It's too sturdy. Absolutely. I bet that's, you know, I I know that cost is probably an issue for some families too. You know, like how much is an iron coffin, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, compared to just like, I guess you'd call it like a normal burial. Yeah, like a wood. Like wood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mort houses, ossuaries, or dead houses. These are all kind of of the same thinking. You know, they're just kind of like building like a little protective uh, house or crypt that you could use to store bones that, you know, you would you would bury a body and then you would take the, the bones maybe a year or two after and store them in these places. And they could also be used in the winter to store dead bodies if it was the ground was too frozen to bury. Like they'd ah, be locked up yeah. inside there. Which yeah. like, in, I mean, I'm from Canada and like that is definitely a thing where when the ground's frozen, mm-hmm. you know, what you gonna do? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Coffin collars, an iron collar often fixed to a piece of wood, it was fixed around the neck of a corpse and then bolted to the bottom of the coffin, mainly used in like the mid 19th century. Wow. I This is something that was new new to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I do wonder, though, like, I guess they're just relying on the weight because I feel like if the coffin is wood, you know. Yeah. They're, yeah. I guess they're just like, can you pick this up? Can you? Yeah, it's too heavy. Yeah, it's too heavy. And do you re- do you really want the body? Eh, nah, just come back mm-hmm. or just go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. The pulley system wasn't built to handle that amount of weight. <laughs> correct, correct. Sort of like Mort House's family mausoleums. Mm-hmm. They don't play like a major role in security for grave robbing, but they're like a display of wealth and that sort of thing. Um, I've been to a few cemeteries mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Where you see some of these big like mausoleums. We'll probably talk about stuff like this when we talk about New Orleans cemeteries. Do you have any family in a mausoleum? I my nanny's in one in New York. No, I don't actually. Yeah. It was weird going that was my first time ever in a mausoleum. And it is the it's weirder being in a mausoleum than it is just going to a a, a cemetery. It is such an eerie in in strange feeling walking through one. Have you been inside one? No, I don't think so. Actually, I, I, I'm not going to ask you to go visit a mausoleum when you're just when you're not visiting somebody. I mean, if you want, but um, it it, it it's very strange. I don't know. I don't well, know how I mean, to explain can you, it. 
Can you just easily get into one that you don't have like access to that it's not your family? I, I'm sure it is as easy as just walking in there. Um, at least the, the one that I went to, there was like a little check-in area. Um, and they did have like a little security guard. It's not just like, can I just look around? I mean, you could just say, oh, I'm looking around. I'm going to die soon. I just want to know if I should be buried mm-hmm. here. I don't know. But I mean, just <laughs> That's knowing That's my classic you, line. I use that line in many situations. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But just knowing you, I feel like you'd, it would be super interesting for you to just go like, just like on a casual Saturday, Elise. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I feel like I've been, like, I've been to the cemeteries in New Orleans mm-hmm. um, where you, they have to have all kinds of different inventive ways of, of burial there because of the weather mm-hmm. and uh, like visiting the Pierce brothers cemetery here in Los Angeles. Uh, I went to, to the one that's in century city and Hugh Hefner is there. Marilyn Monroe is there mm. and it is not like ma- closed mausoleums, but it is like, you know, these, these stacked vaults, right? Yeah. Like yeah. where the, they're, they're all next to each other, but it is like above ground and mm-hmm. they're interred that way. You know, the the cemeteries here in Los Angeles, they get lots of people that are com- they want to see famous yep. burial sites and stuff like that. And so there there's a lot of security there, which was another deterrent that that has been used throughout history, which was used to be a lot more morbid because it was like you you would have someone watching the body day and night to make sure that nobody took it. Now mm-hmm. it's just more like we don't want people coming in traipsing all around this cemetery. Totally. But, and another thing to add is yeah when it when it reached a point of decomposition it would no longer be desirable for medical use so it's like okay you don't have to guard the body anymore bye Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) um yeah deception so like the traps and mazes or tricks you know that they used in ancient egypt would be used to protect a tomb i don't know what you believe or not but if i were to write some curses yeah like i don't i mean if you believe in that you know hey I I definitely would think twice. I would too. Before, I, like even I, before even entering. Oh, for sure. The Egyptians, I would never in a million years want to mess with them. They were they are smarter than me now, modern times. They are smarter than me <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and they were up to some interesting stuff. Um Oh, and another like wild story. This is more modern, you know, the 19th century, but there was this artist in Ohio that he patented this coffin torpedo Mm. where like if someone tried to remove a buried body there was there would be this torpedo blast that would come from the lid i want that and and this other guy both of these people were from ohio so which makes me wonder like what the hell is happening in ohio but this (laughs) other guy uh thomas n howell he patented this coffin that had a shell on top of the lid that acted like a landmine wow I, I want the torpedo, though, if I'm being honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, man, yeah. well, this episode, every every week I wonder, is this going to, how can this get more morbid? And somehow it does. <laughs> yeah, man, this is, uh, went from, really got into it during the cannibalism and necrophilia stuff for me. Just yeah, had to go there. You got to save the best for last. And, you, and we didn't even do. get into like the whole, you know, weekend at Bernie's option that's the option uh, e yeah but we're sadly out of time so that'll that'll have to wait yeah so a general rule of thumb let the dead stay dead okay yeah otherwise when you die elise someone might 
ground you up and snort your corpse to cure their athlete's foot. <laughs> Wait, how do they know I got athlete's foot? <laughs> I don't. I don't actually. Um, I could probably, yeah, I could probably cure some serious athlete's foot. Do it. I dare you. Yeah. Don't give people ideas. I'm having a great time doing this podcast. I'm learning a lot. I am too. More than maybe I asked for. <laughs> and this this first season, I there are so many topics that I hope we can get to. I We won't get to them all in the first season. So hopefully season two. Yeah. And if you guys have any topics that you want us to take a deep dive into, please send them our way. You can follow us on social media at 30 Mormon Minutes, at Jessica Vasami, and at Elise Willems. Please tweet at us and let us know anything that you kind of want to get a deeper understanding of, or if you just want us to talk about it and listen to our takes on it, we'd love we'd love to hear it. Mm-hmm. And share this podcast with your friends, please. I know that might creep people out, but I have to imagine if you're listening to this, you have some pretty interesting friends. Oh, for sure. 